welcome to our CEAI Cohen Esri Apartment Investors podcast, where we talk about investing in apartments. We've got our CEO, Lee Harris, as well as our COO, Ryan Huffman, here with us today. Um, and we're going to talk about a topic that we've hinted at a bit before. Um, in past episodes, we have talked quite a bit our due diligence process, um, as well as our underwriting process and how we mitigate risks that we see throughout that. Um, but today we're going to take a step back and talk a little bit about some macro issues that we're seeing, some current events that are going on. Um, we're looking at a, a rising rates environment. Um, some other things that are happening in the apartment industry that are really pretty timely here. We're almost halfway through 2022 and a lot of things still happening and still yet to happen in the year. Um, but as we know, these are one of those cycles um, as we see a potential recession coming up. Um, it's very cyclical and we've been through this before. So Lee, maybe you can start us off with just some big picture things that you're seeing and we'll go from there. It's very, very confusing right now. I think that's probably the word of the day, confusing. Uh, for several reasons. First of all, yes, rising rate environment. Yes, potential for a recession. Uh, we have uh, markets that are spooked by the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, we have supply chain issues out there, uh, especially uh, that are impacting development and new construction. Uh, but at, at the same time, we have this massive demand issue that's been present for the last several years and looks like it'll continue for years to come. Uh, what is that demand uh, situation? Uh, let's break that down a little bit more. Uh, as we've said in previous podcasts, we have really three generational cohorts that are vying for apartments. Uh, we have baby boomers that are retiring. And as they retire, some of them, quite a number actually, are selling their homes and moving into apartments, uh, particularly in the Sun Belt, where the weather's better and the tax environment may be a bit better, cost of living may be a little less. Uh, we have millennial, the millennial generation, which uh, is a renter by choice to a great extent. They also have student debt and have been unable to save effectively for down payments on, on single family homes. So uh, there's a large percentage, more than 50% of, uh, of millennials uh, live in apartments. And then the Generation Z or the Zoomers are uh, the traditional apartment renters, 18 to 24, 25 year olds. Uh, and we have very large generational cohorts in all three of those uh, generations that I mentioned. And at the same time, we're unable to produce the kind of apartment uh, units that are necessary to, to fulfill this demand that has just been building over the years. Um, we need between 400 and 500,000 units a year to keep pace with this demand. And uh, we're maybe generating 350,000, 380,000, something like that, if we're lucky. There's a lot of of headwinds for apartment development and construction with NIMBYism, not in my backyard, uh, with rising construction costs, rising interest rates, uh, the availability of land. Uh, all of these factors have, have made it tough to, to develop apartments. So on the one hand, we have this massive demand factor that we have not seen in past cycles like I've been through many of them. Uh, usually we'll see some sort of a, 
a decline in demand. We may see overbuilding. There's no overbuilding anywhere in the country right now of apartments. Uh, the other problem we have that's really creating a national housing crisis is we've never seen since the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, we've never seen a return to the production of single family homes at the levels that we saw pre-Great Recession. So <clears throat> on top of that, we have household formations that are skyrocketing. And a lot of that was COVID pent up uh, uh, issues where we had people living in the parents' basements, especially younger folks, doubling up, that sort of thing. And now as COVID is on the wane, uh, we're seeing all this household formation just exploding. And so that what's different this time than it was uh, in past uh, down cycles for the apartment industry is demand is so strong that uh, the rents are on, on the increase and continue to be on the increase. Uh, there's just no, our, our, Ryan can speak to this. Our portfolio is, is really at, at optimal occupancy and above optimal. I mean, optimal occupancy at 85, 95% or so is incredible. And we're above that. Uh, so I'm confused. I'm really confused about this cycle. In cycles past, I've seen uh, the market tank. I've seen Class A rents come down. I've seen people in Class B uh, apartments move up into Class A because it became so much cheaper. We're seeing none of that this time around. So um, Ryan, help me with my confusion here. I don't know that I can. I mean, the, the one thing you haven't brought up and that is out there as a possible risk factor is this idea that apartment rents are, are just growing at such a rate that it's unsustainable. And that's true, depending on where you're at in the country, that you're seeing double digit increases. I mean, we know in Florida, they're seeing an unbelievable increase in the Naples area and Fort Myers. And you're talking, what, Lee, is it 28% in those areas? Yeah, Naples, Florida last year, 2021, led the nation with a 38% average rent increase, uh, which is just unheard of. It's unheard of. And so there is some discussion that's around, you know, we talk all the time, what do we see that could stop this? And that's probably the one factor, one of just a couple that we could see is that rents are, are just on a trajectory that, it, that we all have to admit is not sustainable. We can't have even 10, 12% lifts every single year for in for eternity. At some point, those rents are going to have to normalize back into kind of the two, 3% range because you'll just hit a place where salaries and salary increases, the cost of living is just going to become unsustainable for folks. So I, I don't know that I can help with the confusion. I mean, to add to the confusion even more is the amount of capital that is out chasing deals. And, and Lee and I had the opportunity to have lunch a, a few weeks ago and I'll reiterate a story that we were told. There, there's a group that has a billion dollar fund and they get loaded every single year. And they bid on a property and they bid $15 million over the top level pricing they expected. And the reason they gave was we're three months into the year, we haven't won a single deal. These are guys with a billion dollars of equity to deploy and we're tired of losing. And if, if nobody out there sees that as a completely undisciplined piece of the pie, that's what it is, which that is fueling the ongoing pricing 
that you're seeing. I mean, since the beginning of the year, we've seen pricing just go bonkers because people got reloaded on on capital and they're out there still buying deals. Um, I think the rate environment has a propensity perhaps to slow that, but I don't think it's going to happen, at least for the rest of 2022. I bet you don't see that until 2023. And that depends on how aggressive the Fed needs to get to try to cool this red hot inflation, um, which there's all kinds of speculation. They're expecting a half point, what, three more times this year um, to try to stamp this thing down. Um, but I think there's too many factors at, at play here. I mean, China's zero tolerance policy we haven't talked about, but that's causing additional supply crisis across the system because their factories have to close down. And so the Fed can't tame that even with monetary policy. So uh, confusion is going to reign for a while. <laughs> yes. Well, let's let's talk about let's talk about this macroeconomic situation a little bit more. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of saber rattling at the Fed. Uh, and frankly, it's my opinion that they, uh, they're they using 20th century techniques to try to tame inflation. Uh, and, and this is a 21st century problem caused by a lot of things. The, the main reason being we printed $5 trillion, $6 trillion worth of money and flooded. We flooded the system with money and now we're paying for it because that's usually what happens. That's usually the, the cause of of inflation, it's not government spending. I mean, it doesn't help, but when you have too much money in the system, that's what causes inflation. And instead of uh, you know the quantitative tightening, instead of you know they did quantitative easing, easing uh, and printed money, and rather than focus months and months and months ago on on stricter quantitative tightening, they've chosen to go after the interest rate environment. Uh, which I think is problematic in a couple of respects. First of all, I think the supply chain, which we have never had this issue that I can remember in my 47 years of this, uh, where supply chain issues were so critical. Uh, and if they dial up the interest rates too much more, I think they're going to completely uh, exacerbate and, and really uh, the supply chain is so fragile they could do serious damage if, if the Fed continues these 20th century policies of rate increases. Uh, second issue I see is by pushing these rates, you know, we're having to service the national debt here at higher and higher levels. And pretty soon it doesn't take many more rate increases and, and our debt gets so expensive that you know the, 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 the tax money we're paying is gonna go to service debt more so than the the programs that are necessary. So I think the Fed is is is, is going to have to really reassess their desire to pump these rates up. Uh, we we know some of the Fed governors that are hawkish. I mean, ultra hawkish, and think this is the only way to go. And uh, boy, I I think it would be devastating to this country and certainly to our industry if the Fed pushes rates as aggressively as they 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 claim to to be planning in that way. All that being said, all the confusion, how do we as apartment investors and on the acquisition line, how do we think through that when it comes to making acquisitions and making sure that we're still making smart decisions? Ryan, you're on the front line. When, what are some of the things going through your head and what are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, I've said this on this podcast before, and actually I've been saying it for 18 months, and I think it holds true more today and, and maybe for the foreseeable future than it did then. You have got to know your box. 
and you've got to make sure that that box has bright red lines around it and do not color outside the lines of that box. Because as I said earlier, this undisciplined approach to purchasing, it can get a lot of people in trouble really, really quickly. <clears throat> and, you know, there's no doubt, I think that you're going to see a level of cap rate expansion as rates continue to move up. Um, Lee, and we can talk a little bit more about this. We've been concerned about it for probably again, 18 months where we've seen this inversion to the interest rate versus the cap rates as it currently sits. Now we've tamed that a little bit because we look more at what I call the true cap rate, which is a stabilized yield on cost. And in that case, we have not seen a heavy inversion um, as we have on the, what I call the, the in-place cap rate when you buy it. And stabilized yield on cost is simply taking your NOI at stabilization after you've done your renovation and dividing it by the cost of the transaction as it is today to get what the cap rate, what, what we call the true cap rate is. Uh, or what it's going to be when you're complete with renovation. Um, so, you know, what are we doing on the front lines? We're not buying a lot. <laughs> and Lee and I have had this conversation and we've said, you know what, that's okay. Because you don't want to do something. At some point, the merry-go-round stops and you don't want to be the, the person without a chair. Um, so making sure that you're staying within your box and coloring with the lines is important. We're putting a, a few more margin of safety measures in position and doing a lot of stress testing um, on exit caps in particular. So we're expanding those for the sale, assuming there's going to be an expansion. If you if you listen to our earlier podcast, we were at a you know 10 basis point per year of hold. We've probably doubled that. So if we're holding for five years, we're probably 100 basis points upward adjustment in the cap rate on sale, sometimes more than that. We have a deal in, in Dallas where we upped the cap rate 170 basis points on the exit. And we stress it that way and underwrite it that way to make sure the returns still work, even in an expansionary cap rate environment. Um, so we're being ultra sensitive to that scenario. We're also being super sensitive now. We have been all along, but even more so to the price per door or what we call the price per pound and making sure that we're, we're seeing units. And I'll tell this story too, and, and Lee can react because I got an email from Bob Esri about it, but there was a deal down in Dallas that's in the creme de la creme area of Dallas, selling for $650,000 a door. And I've never seen that. Lee, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but man, I've never seen that. And if you think about a per unit $650,000 and compare it to a house price, it kind of blows your mind a little bit. And you know, we're trying to be more as sensitive, if not more sensitive to the exit price per door, um, it's much harder to prove that now. We, we always have ha held tight that we have to be able to prove it today. And if you want to win deals, you're not going to do that. But consider that maybe those deals are not deals you want to win, is my advice to folks. And Lee, I don't know how you feel about all that, but that's I'm a more conservative approach to this stuff, which no, is I think, why I, I think, run the platform. <laughs> well, what, what we've always talked about is, okay, there are still deals to, to make out there. You just have to look farther yep. and harder and deeper. And so rather than looking at 200 deals, you got to look at 400 deals and, and everybody's a seller right now. That's the other thing because uh, the selling environment has been so strong. And I think one of the things that you didn't mention, but is important is what is the story? Uh, we have talked about that on prior podcasts, but that's even more important today than ever before. If we're looking at a deal we're not going to be that buyer that just has to push money out the door. That is not 
the, the reason to buy a property. The reason to buy a property is there's a story to tell and some sort of value that's, that's locked in somehow that we unlock and, and produce that value for our investors and, and provide great customer fulfillment uh, to our residents in the process and everybody wins. And, and I think that's what you continue to do with your team is, is look, at, look for those deals where there is that story uh, and maintain the discipline that we've uh, enjoyed for these years. We sold seven properties last year. Uh, and if I recall correctly, we are just at 20% annualized internal rate of return on a weighted basis uh, on those seven, seven properties. Why did we achieve that kind of return? Because the properties that we acquired and then sold had a great story. Uh, we were able to create the value over a period of four to five years. Uh, and uh, the properties we've been buying, you continue to find that story and continue to unlock that value. And that's what this is all about. This is not about shoving, his, uh, shoving money out the door because if we don't, we're going to have investors mad when we have to give their money back to them. Right. Uh, there's, another, there's another external factor that is, a, is worrisome to me um, and that's rent control. And there are several states, particularly in the Northeast, uh, where uh, well, they've had rent control in New York City forever. Uh, San Francisco, I believe, has rent control. But there are a number of states that are considering rent control, believing that uh, rent control is the way that they can stop this dramatic rise in rental rates. And all that will do is is tamp down uh, the opportunity to add supply to the market. Uh, it's proven time and time again, and why these uh, legislative bodies believe that cost control, uh, mandated cost control is an answer to anything I'll never understand because it's been proven false every time. Uh, but that does concern me a bit. And you know, one of the things we don't do is we're not operating in in the Northeast. That's one of the reasons we're not operating in the Northeast. Uh, we're Southeast, we're Midwest, sun, we're Sunbelt. We don't play on the West Coast, Pacific Northwest, because they, they do that kind of thing there too. Uh, but that is a, a real concern on a macro basis when we're looking at how do we add to supply? And when we have governmental units that are trying to control rents, it, it'll backfire. So I just thought I'd throw that in as a, as a as yet another factor here. Yeah, Lee, I think that's a great point. And something else the three of us were just talking about too, um, single family homes. Um, where does the competition with apartments versus single family homes come in? Lee, you had some good data on that. Could you pull that up? Yeah, so the uh, median home price was announced uh, within the last couple of weeks at $406,000 on a national basis, all time high. Uh, the median rental rate was $1,047. So if you extrapolate that, that median home price at $406,000 and you make some assumptions about interest rates, you make some assumptions about, well, let's just say it's a 90% loan. Uh, when you add principal, interest, taxes, and insurance, you're over $2,000 a month compared to $1,047 a month as the median rental rate. So there's a thousand, almost a $1,000 differential there. 
if 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 there are generational cohorts, particularly millennials, that want to ever buy a home, when we have this constantly escalating uh, cost of home ownership, especially new construction, new construction is just off the charts in terms of, of what it costs because where construction is, uh, they, they have the same problems building single family homes that we have building apartments uh, with land availability and with lumber prices, et cetera. Uh, this is a spiraling uh, issue here. And Ryan's right, you know, at what point can people just not afford either? They can't afford to, to, to buy a house. And if, if you go from $1,047 to $1,700 a month on, on the rental rate, median rental rate, how many people are gonna just be priced out of the market, certainly priced out of the single family home market, and so I think you know we're, we, as as good stewards of investor capital, uh, and yet try to deliver customer fulfillment to our residents. We have a fine line that we're walking in terms of how high do we push the rental rates. Uh, it, it used to be that we always said if you if you're full, if you're 100 percent occupied, your rents are too low. Some truth to that. I still but, say. That. <laughs> yeah. Well, but at the same time. Uh, if we're able to beat our pro forma uh, and make it work and we're 97, 98% occupied uh, <clears throat> and, and delivering returns that exceed what we told our investors we were targeting, you know, we, I think we can afford to, to be a little uh, less aggressive with rents uh, simply because we need to leave that runway between apartment rents and single family. And this is not just being altruistic. It's being practical from the standpoint that we don't want someday for people to, to uh, say, well, I, I, I'm gonna buy a home no matter what. I'll get money from my parents or, uh, and what could also happen, there could be some foreclosures in the uh, single family market where uh, builders get in trouble uh, on some new construction, and uh, you'll, you could see the foreclosure market open up and banks uh, take some, some hits. Uh, if it costs $500,000 to build a house and they can only get $375,000 for it, you know, they, they may write off that other $125,000. And that $375,000 home may compete with one of our apartment communities. So do we want to push the rents to the absolute max and run the risk that sometime during our holding period, we're going to bump up against single family home prices and see an exit of, of the number of our residents? I say not. And I think it's important. You brought up a good point. And there's one even deeper dive we should look at, which is we talked about this on podcast before. You're, you're quoting the median rent. That's all classes. Even if you go to the class A rent alone, we're pushing $1,500 on the average. So using your same example of a median home price, there's still a $500 cushion between a class A product on the average and the average home pricing. That, that's really why you're seeing this demand. And we say we don't see where that's going to go because, man, that's got to drop. The bottom's got to start dropping out of some of these things before you're going to see probably demand drivers start to get affected. There, there's the fundamentals just are very, very different than they were in the, the past cycle.
What else? I'm more confused now. I don't know. <laughs> also, we're gonna throw in. The oh, are we? We're confusing ourselves. <laughs> well, I think I think that you know, summarize. Uh, steady as you go. Uh, no need to panic. Uh, you know, we will buy what we can that makes sense where there's a story. Uh, we want to preserve a healthy spread between class A and class B rents, not to mention single family home pricing and, and the, the cost of living in a single family home and living in an apartment. Uh, and, and we're going to stay disciplined and march forward. And it may mean that we buy fewer properties this year and maybe next year, who knows. Uh, but I do think we're well positioned to, uh, to take advantage of, of the current environment. And I also believe that um, I wouldn't say we're recession proof. Inflation historically has helped uh, the apartment industry. Why? Because uh, unlike other real estate asset classes or subclasses, we can adjust our rents much more quickly with one-year leases uh, than a retail shopping center with three to five-year leases, office buildings, industrial, et cetera. So um, yeah, I, I, I would just, I think that uh, for us, uh, not a lot changes. Uh, there's nothing for us to pivot to in terms of, uh, you know, being a whole lot more creative. I do know we're doing some bridge uh, funding uh, as, as opposed to uh, uh, jumping right into perm loans that, that have interest rates that are uh, shooting up there pretty, pretty high. But uh, we have to be very careful about how we do those bridge facilities as well. Uh, but no, no need to get ultra creative here and, and shove money out the door just because we have to. Yeah, I think that was a great summary. Um, thank you both for your time as always. Thanks Ryan as well. And thanks everyone for listening.